Oh, kia ora koutou whanau. Welcome back to another edition of the Department of Conversation brought to you by Stratus, the most affordable alternative to smoking. The Stratus starter kit is under 25 bucks for three pods. Each pod lasts most users several days, so for 25 bucks you basically get, let's say, two to four weeks worth of replacements for cigarettes for the cost of one packet of cigarettes. Then the refill pods are less than 20 bucks for four of them. So as you can see, financially speaking, you might only be spending... Gosh, for a month, what you'd normally spend on one packet of cigarettes. Vaporium.nz is the place to find Stratus, and the whole driving um, factor behind Stratus is to help people stop smoking. Vaporium.nz for more information. Hey, I'm excited about today's show. Uh, I have long been a follower and watcher of numerous online internet political commentators and political shows. Um, one of them is the David Pakman Show. David Pakman is an Argentinian-born uh, American political commentator and broadcaster. He has a really interesting show online each day called The David Pakman Show. Lots of commentary, lots of uh, information about politics in, in the world in general, but obviously especially in America. He brings a really interesting perspective because although he was mostly raised in the U.S., being born outside the U.S., I think, uh, with family from outside the U.S. will give you a different perspective on the world. So it's one of the reasons I like watching David. Been in contact with him for a couple of months and uh, found a gap in his schedule and he was gracious enough to want to join us for an hour or so to have a chat about life, the universe and everything. Ladies and gentlemen, here's David Packman. We are live. David Packman, good morning from New Zealand, sir. Thank you. Doing well? Doing well. Uh, afternoon here, you know, another another normal day in American politics, which is, you know, a, a crazy day, really. really. In, in Boston, is that right? We live up in Boston. That's right. Um, I have to pick a bit. I've got a bit of a bone to pick with you, actually, because you made oh, okay. you just made me watch about forty minutes of that orange orangutan talking mm. in a monotone voice to workers. Although I have to say, for people who don't know, I was watching the end of your live stream. Do you know at the end of your live stream how you turned off because there was music playing? Did you pick up on what that music was? I think it was YMCA. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> the most <laughs> impressive gay anthem the world has ever known playing at a Trump rally in front of a whole lot of uh, hairy, masculine uh, Texans. I laughed and laughed and laughed so loud. So I'm glad that you uh, accidentally put a little bit of that over there. I thought that was utterly hilarious. Yeah, it's um, it's a, a real exhibit in uh, confusion. Yeah. Is the way I describe a lot of these events. I was like, he obviously knew his audience, or maybe he didn't, or maybe he never does to play that particular song. <laughs> it was very funny. Hey, um, I don't think he's that involved, honestly, in a lot of these details. You know, I think he just shows up, and you know, he often struggles to even read the script that's handed to him. So yeah. I think he's minimally involved in in the details. Has he been good for you? Meaning numbers, streams, memberships, that sort of thing. If you personally, obviously, not the country. Yeah, I mean, listen. Any time that there's an election, it's it's a good year for me. So that's that's always been the case. There's no doubt that since Donald Trump was elected, so many more people that were not paying attention to politics in the U.S. started paying attention for good reasons in the sense that they perceived that their lives, maybe more so than in the past, were going to be directly affected by things that this administration was planning to do or would stumbled into one way or the other. Right. So that's great. And, and yeah, I mean, I've said to my audience, I think that if Joe Biden wins in November, it would not be as good for my business, but it would be better for the country. So I'm still voting for Biden. I, I've been transparent with the audience about that. I was listening to something you were saying the other day and you were talking about um, kind of the left uniting. It's time to unite because even though there are some things that the left disagrees on, uh, you know, the, the, the big thing everyone agrees on is getting Trump out. So the, the smaller things you're arguing about, put aside for the next three months, get Trump out and then pick up the conversation again. Um, I was thinking about that and I was thinking, uh, I, I wrote a piece maybe six months ago and funnily enough, you used the phrase burning down the house when you were talking about it, about the, 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 the whole system needs to be burned to the ground and someone like Bernie would be starting to rebuild it with new wood and someone like Biden would be starting to rebuild it using all the charred pieces of wood on the ground. And I was just thinking the one thing I felt like, you, not that you left out, that I was thinking that wasn't a part of that conversation you were having, was at some point we all go, I can't do this anymore. 
I can't do this. At some stage, I have to say enough is enough. And everyone has that at a different place. And for people who are probably, let's say, centre left to left, they haven't hit that yet, but it would seem that those who are maybe on the far left, they have hit that. And that's why they want to burn that to the ground. And at some stage, everyone will hit that wall. And obviously, you know, wherever you place yourself in, in politics on that continuum, you haven't hit that yet. But at some stage, you will, if things don't change. And that's what I thought was the one thing that was maybe left out of your, the conversation was when we say, let's just elect, well, I'm not involved, but everyone gets together and elect Trump. What about those people who have hit the wall and have gone, even electing Biden is not going to change anything, like Obama was supposed to bring hope and change, and there was a lot of things that didn't happen there. What would you say to those people? Well, there's a, there's a lot of different things in there, so let's explore some of them. Cool. It, it's certainly possible that people have a different breaking point. I mean, sure, the breaking point for one person is different than the other. But that sort of implies that it's just a difference of opinion, this idea of incremental change versus burn it all down and try to build it build it back up, so to speak. The case I've made is that if you look at the sort of modern American political era of the last 140 years, mm-hmm. burn it down to build it back up just has not worked. Yeah, that true. if you actually look at the big movements that have achieved change, you look at the progressive era of 1890 to 1920, you look at the post-World War II New Deal era, and then you look at the 60s, late 50s into 60s civil rights era, really it's the ideology of I like to say of Martin Luther King rather than Malcolm X that has actually achieved change, which is right. having the right people in the Supreme Court, for example, because so much ends up coming down to that. Burn it down to build it back up won't achieve that. At least it hasn't. Um, when you look at voting rights in the 10s and 20s, when you look at so much of, of, of the New Deal era. I mean, my argument is, sure, everybody can have what feels like a breaking point, and we can disagree about what that is. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the three big areas, times of progressive advancement in the United States, they've come from having the White House and having the right people in the Supreme Court and having a House and Senate that are on your side. And yep. so I'm making an empirical case rather than I'm not disagreeing with the emotional case you're making of at some point everybody will hit the wall, but I try to make it a more empirical case, if that makes sense. Does that therefore scare you about the, um, well, scare, that's an emotional response, uh, give you pause for concern about the Supreme Court? Um, Because if you need the Supreme Court with, you know, the Republicans stealing uh, a justice from Obama, and then putting a few in, and now you know Ruth um, Bader Ginsburg being ill again, and everyone just going, please hold on, please hold on, please hold on. Um, that that might take decades to get to where, let's say, someone who's further left progressive wants to get to, because of the new appointees that have just just happened. Yes, so there were actually some people. On the left, I mean, I, I don't want to say ostensibly on the left, like, okay, they're on the left, but they have a different approach than I have, who in 2016 were saying, I'm paraphrasing, if it's not Bernie, Hillary, Trump, you know, it's kind of all the same. Yeah. But if we've learned anything in the last three and a half years, it's that Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court, uh, Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court, this has had a real impact. Hillary Clinton would not have selected them. Sure, maybe Hillary Clinton would not have selected someone equivalent to Bernie Sanders, okay. But there's, for, for me, one of the great vindications has been, or the great lessons has been, those people who were saying, if it's not Bernie, it's sort of all the same. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. it could not have been more wrong. Yeah, yeah that's a, it's a, it's a, it's a really good point. And I, and I guess, although... I was thinking yesterday, I read a story about how Kavanaugh is going around at the moment, going around, um, talking to his fellow justices about not kind of putting the the, um, the tax records in front of the Supreme Court, trying to um, convince his counterparts not to put that in front of the Supreme Court. To me, that also says maybe the system's still working either under those justices, because maybe he's what he's saying is, if it comes in front of the Supreme Court, we're going to have to open them up. And if that's the case, that means even though he's a right-wing justice, well, a you know, conservative justice, the justice system is still working under the Supreme Court. 
Sure. I mean, I think it's a bit speculative and, and I don't pretend to have any idea. I mean, from what we've seen in terms of decisions from this court over the last few months, I don't find too much. I don't think I'm particularly adept at predicting how they will decide on any particular case. Yep. So certainly we, we could speculate about that. But, you know, when you look at holding that seat open that should have gone to Merrick Garland during Barack Obama's last year, and consider for a second, if there were to be a seat open between now and January, would Republicans take the same approach and yeah, say, you know, or be between now and November maybe is a better better analogy. We should wait because Trump might lose. Of course not. And that argument was always, you know, political BS and posturing. And if we've proven anything, it's that they don't care about consistency hypocrisy is irrelevant, double standards don't matter. Yeah. <laughs> and we have to really buckle down. And, you know, this was what was so frustrating, not to change topic, but during the Democratic primary, when I would see people kind of messing around with the 1% candidates a little too deep into the primary, where the stakes were starting to get clear, and it was pretty clear who, who was sort of in the thing. I always want as many different voices to be at least on the table but once it becomes clear sort of who are the choices and the people continuing to call me late into the game saying someone polling one percent that's who we should get behind and they're the only person who can defeat trump it started to feel a little bit like 2016 and it was it was i'm glad that that it sort of wrapped up when it did were you surprised i mean not to relitigate what's happened i mean uh when everyone got behind Joe Biden in the space of like 48 hours after a few phone calls from Obama, that was one of the most amazing political events I think I've ever seen because it did look like Bernie all the way through at that stage. Uh, again, as I say, not to relitigate it, I'm not interested in doing that, but as a, as a, as a political event, that 48-hour window was unbelievable. Yeah, so two sides to it. One, as an undertaking... It was incredible what was done. I mean, you know, when you looked at the numbers, I actually disagree that it was that clear that it was going to go to Bernie, but I'll talk about okay. that in a moment. But certainly at a superficial level to see, I mean, the momentum changed 180 degrees. Yeah. There's no question about that. So that, as an achievement, whether you like it or not, and a lot of people don't like it, and certainly Biden is not the progressive panacea that anybody would, would like to see if you, that's your, your politics as an accomplishment in the political space in a 48 to 70 hour period, incredible, incredible. Now, I remember the South Carolina primary, which was the first one that Joe Biden won, was on a Saturday night and I was out with some friends, so I didn't see the results. And I think around midnight or so when I got home, I saw, oh, Joe Biden won South Carolina and he won it very easily. Mm -hmm. The results didn't surprise me, but I thought, it, this is a big momentum shift because very often you hear these things like when we get a primary that is more diverse, things are going to turn around. And then like everybody repeats it and it never happens. And it's just like, okay, I guess that that wasn't true. Yeah. South Carolina was the first primary that was not overwhelmingly white. You had Iowa and New Hampshire. And it was exactly as predicted. Joe Biden was polling really well with, with black Americans. Bernie Sanders was not. Joe Biden easily won South Carolina. You saw the map. You saw the list of upcoming primaries. So I was not that surprised with the turnaround. I thought that it was notable in, in how it happened. Mm. Um, but it, I did, there was no point where I said, I can't believe this is happening. It made sense based on looking at the demographics and looking at the polling. Yeah, uh, it's, it's going to be... I, 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 we have a similar situation in New Zealand, but it's sort of reversed. Like at the moment, our... Um, government, our Labour government, which is, so to explain it to people who are tuning in from, from your side, we have five parties in government, two major parties who are akin to, um, you know, the, the Republicans and the Democrats, although we are much further left. There was an article in one of our papers the other day that said the centre-left is the new centre in New Zealand. But we basically have, go uh, to, to make it easy, although I'm, I'm expediting it for the case of, sake of conversation, a uh, far-left Green Party, a left Labour Party, a centrist New Zealand First Party, a right National Party, um, and then a far-right ACT Party. Now, three of those parties only make up maybe 15% of government. The other 85% is made between the two the two big parties. Um, and we sort of have the reverse at the moment that we have 
a 60 to 65 percent um, support for our incumbent government, um, left-wing government, basically based around what's happened with coronavirus. But I've been thinking, of, and we have a different style of uh, electioneering, it's called mixed member proportional, which basically means every vote counts. Uh, when you vote for the party, you get to vote for the party, so you might vote for Labour or for National, but you also get to vote for a local um politician for your area as well so you get two votes but the party vote is the only vote that really matters because that's the percentage that they base the number of MPs on members of parliament on so anyway even though we're a 60 percent party and uh, we being the the current government not me um, I was still thinking when people get into that booth and they have to put the x on or pull the lever or push the button or whatever however it's done I'm interested to see what will happen on the day. And it's a bit similar for America, even though Biden seems to be on a national scale. And I know you've been kind of talking about this, you know, don't get complacent, go out and vote. When they actually get in that booth, maybe those independents, maybe those moderate Republicans, and they have to actually pull the lever for Joe Biden or stick with maybe Republican over Trump, what will they do? And I wonder if it's going to be both New Zealand and America uh, closer than has been predicted at the moment well i think there's no way you know there's some polls that have biden up 13 or 15 nationally i, I don't think there's any chance that happens so i think it, it is going to be closer and if you could argue this is a different situation this is an unprecedented situation but typically as you get closer to election day undecideds break for the incumbent and um i don't knows break for the incumbent turnout often will will break for the incumbent slightly. I think that's what happened in 2004 when it looked like maybe John Kerry could defeat George W. Bush. And of mm -hmm. course, it didn't, didn't end up working out that way. So Joe Biden's not going to win the popular vote by 15 or by 17. I don't think he'll win by double digits. But in the Electoral College, you could really have a very lopsided situation. Now, there's another sort of component to this that's being discussed here which is the idea of a shy or embarrassed Trump voter right. that is not admitting their support for Trump. Right. Um, I don't believe it. And, and it's not, I have no special insight, but I've read a bit about this. First of all, you know, a lot of the polling right now is, is automated. You get a call on your cell phone and you press a button indicating who you support. There's no real reason that in a, that situation, one would be shy about saying they are supporting Donald Trump. I mean, they're, they're essentially anonymous. So in that situation, it doesn't uh, strike me as something that's particularly likely. Um, there's the idea that for strategic purposes, Trump voters thinking ahead might say, you know, if it looks like Biden's winning, more Trump voters will be motivated. Right. And so I'm going to say in the poll that I support Biden, even though I really don't. <laughs> I've seen no evidence. I mean, you know, the way that the, the polling is done, you, you'd really need a sort of concerted effort of people to do that. And we would have heard about it. So I, I don't think that's the reason why it'll be closer than the polls say. I think the historical reasons explain why it will be closer than 10 or 13 or 15. Yeah. Yeah. Under our New Zealand system, uh, it's called MMP, mixed member proportional. We've never had a majority government. So that's been in place since about 1994. Um, and we've always had a minority government, and um, which basically means for people who are uninitiated, no party has ever got over 50%. So you've had, right. to, had to have a coalition of parties to get over 50% to become government. So at the moment in, party, in, in government, we've got the Labour Party. I don't know what their numbers were, but let's say they were on 35% of the vote. We've got the Greens, they got 10% of the vote, and we got New Zealand First, which is that centrist party, which maybe got 6 or 7% of the vote, making up, let's say, 52 via the government. The largest party is Labour. That's where the Prime Minister comes from, Jacinda Ardern. And uh, every New Zealander, well, I won't say every New Zealander, every sane New Zealander thanks the lucky stars under this COVID crisis that this is the government we've got in, and she is the person leading it because I, we, yeah, get, I mean, I we get to, to go to rugby games. So yeah, go for it. I, I've said... I've said here in the U.S. that, you know, when there's a big crisis, a real national crisis, 9-11, for example, Katrina, although that was bungled pretty quickly, so it didn't really happen. But with 9-11, there was this rally around the flag effect where George W. Bush's approval rating shot up into the high 80s, the highest it had ever been. Yep. He ultimately squandered it by attacking Iraq, which had nothing to do with 9-11, and yep. the rest is history. Early in coronavirus, Donald Trump's approval actually went up. 
then we know what happened, you know, so I don't, I don't have to tell the story. And now he's facing, you know, an embarrassing electoral defeat. Maybe we'll see sort of what happens. I've argued that had he handled coronavirus well, which really by that I mean defer to the doctors, yep. come clean up front that this is a difficult time for the country and we need to band together. There will be difficult times, but we will come out on the other side. I've argued that he would be sailing towards re-election. Of right course. Now. In New Zealand, is it your belief or instinct that Jacinda Ardern now is experiencing the high levels of approval essentially for the opposite reason that she did really well yeah. with the virus? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. That's 100%. 100% that's what's been going on. I mean, um, she was a popular prime minister anyway. She was in, she was our prime minister at about 38. She just turned 40 in the weekend. So she's young, she's vibrant, she's engaging. Um, she has a different style of management. And in her first term, um, one that may not be quite known so well around the world is we had a volcanic eruption in New Zealand called Fakati, White Island. Fakati is a Maori name for it. Um, and it went off and people died and people got, you know, very badly damaged from that. That happened in her I'm term. familiar with it. Okay. We had uh, a Christchurch massacre, which we've never seen before. We don't own guns. Well, we do. We're farmers. But in New Zealand, like, you can't just go to the shop and buy a gun. It's a very different culture. We had a massacre where 51 Muslims died, um, unheard of in this country. Um, and we had the the COVID crisis. All these things have happened during Jacinda Ardern's reign. And she had a baby in her first year as Prime Minister. So I think she was already kind of, I don't say put on a pedestal, but it's pretty easy to make someone who's gone through those things popular, you know, to look at them and look at them with admiration. Uh, when John Key, who was our previous Prime Minister, he was a more of a right-wing Prime Minister, although I'm hesitant using those terms um, to an American audience because... Our right-wing politicians voted for same-sex marriage, and they voted for many left-wing policies like interest-free student loans and working for family, which is a tax break if you've got kids. So when I say right-wing, it's very different from perhaps what an American might think when, when they hear right-wing. But um, we had the Christchurch earthquake under John Key, and he saw similar levels of um, you know uh, 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 people approving of him, how he handled the the Christchurch quake. So yes, absolutely, because of COVID, that is one of the reasons that Jacinda is riding so high. She was pretty popular anyway, but I, I, I have to be honest, I'm I'm sitting in Dunedin, so that's the bottom of the South Island. You can't go much further south than where I am, basically next step Antarctica. Um, and I'm out there every day, dressed like this, no social distancing, no nothing. You know, our national sport is rugby. We get 30,000, 40,000 people at a stadium. That's happening at the moment. Um, and then I come in and I, because I kind of take on American politics intravenously. It's sort of what I do. I wake up every morning and check my phone to see if Donald Trump's blown up the top half of the world yet. Um, and I forget. And then I watch a White House briefing and I'm like, fuck me, all these people are wearing masks. And I'm like, oh, that's right. There's this thing going on outside the borders of New Zealand. That's not happening here. And then when I see that, I kind of go, oh, you know, thanks to those who are making the decisions. Yes, Jacinda Ardern, but also following the medical advice, following the WHO guidelines. And yeah, I, I'm I'm so lucky, happy and blessed to be living where I am right now, trust me. And because of that long-winded answer, the answer to your question is yes. <laughs> because of COVID, that's why she's riding so high. Right. Yeah, no, I feel the same way in terms of, I mean, things are better in New Zealand than they are in Massachusetts. But if you look at the United States, things are pretty good in Massachusetts, at, at least for now. I, I'm really interested, actually, in New Zealand, because at least in the United States, there you see sort of the um, uh, idolizing of New Zealand for different reasons mm -hmm. from left and right. So on the left, there's the understand or the idea of New Zealand as this kind of um, you know, Labour Party left, left progressive paradise with a great social safety net and uh, social services, healthcare, mm -hmm. education, etc. On the libertarian right, New Zealand is super popular as a place with limited regulation and mm. geographic distance, where you know rich people are getting kind of bug out bunkers, very yeah. remote places where they can go to if things if things go bad. I, I don't know how you know. I don't know about the low regulation actually being accurate, but maybe at least the opportunity for privacy is something that that is more accurate. Um, 
so I, I, I find it interesting that for different reasons, left and right are kind of interested in New Zealand. Well, well there's certainly that perception of, so where I live in the bottom of the South Island, if people want to look up, if, if people are watching from your end, um, look up Queenstown. Queenstown is a location in the bottom of the South Island, up in the mountains. It's kind of akin to Aspen. So it's it's very wealthy. It's very expensive. It's up in the mountains. There's snow in the winter. There's mountain biking in the summer. Beautiful lakes. Like, like okay, put it this way. Uh, half of Lord of the Rings was shot there. So that that's the environment we're talking about. Um, and they're currently shooting the new Lord of the Rings, the Amazon series, up there at the moment. So it's it's unbelievably naturally beautiful, incredibly expensive as well. There are many um, wealthy internationals who own places up there. However, it's interesting that you say libertarians would like us. I wouldn't consider us to have low um, regulations because you need to be improved. We have an, a, a government office called the OIO, the Office of International... I can't remember. Anyway, uh, investment office of anyway basically if you're offshore <laughs> and you want to spend money in new zealand and buy property you have to get approved by this government agency so you can't just land buy a place and set up a bunker you have to be approved to buy it and sometimes that's controversial peter teal has a place up in um up in queenstown um you know what's the name of the guy the the guy from good morning america who got uh during the me too movement got done with the, the door the lock in his door and his office, he pushed the button. Matt Lauer? Yeah, Matt Lauer's got a place up there. We don't even know who these people okay. are, really. He could walk down the street and he'd get no no acknowledgement here whatsoever. Um, you know, Shania Twain used to have a place up there, but she sold it. And sometimes that comes with controversy because we, as New Zealanders, go, why the hell do they get to buy a sheep station? You know, we should be keeping that within our own boundaries. So I don't see regulations or I don't see us as being kind of a soft and easy target for wealthy people to come and live. Um, but we are certainly removed and isolated and safe and one of the reasons we can do what we're doing with COVID is because we're a, an island nation um you know so it's so we do have COVID in the country at the moment but what's happening is every person who lands currently international visitors can't come to New Zealand only New Zealanders can come home uh, there's a few exceptions like the new avatar is filming here at the moment with James Cameron James Cameron has a place up by Wellington um, and they're filming up there with Peter Jackson and Weta Workshop. So that whole crew came in, but that was for a particular economic reason. Um, but then when people land, they get isolated in a government-paid-for hotel for two weeks, and that's the only place in the country at the moment that has COVID. So there's nothing in the community. It's only coming in on planes and then being caught at the border. So the isolation does work, and with that isolation brings privacy. You mentioned privacy, but also with um, with our population brings privacy. We're a bigger um, landmass than uh, Great Britain. We have five million people; they have sixty million. You know, there is lots of space here. It's easy to find privacy if you want to, because because our population density is very low. Not to get totally off track, but a friend of mine and and his now wife spent like a summer in New Zealand and they actually, they, they worked at baristas as right. baristas and they claim, I want to fact check that the coffee culture in yep. New Zealand is extremely snobby and strict, which I love. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it sounds great to me. Is that, is that a fact? Yeah, totally. Like people, people, we, <laughs> you know, there's that old saying when America sneezes, the world catches a cold. So America influences the world with culture and with movies and with music and, you know, the, the, the America's fingers in every country, every Western country especially. And we watch, you know, the idolizing of things like Starbucks and go, oh, God, you know, that's not even coffee. It's disgusting sort of thing. Um, it, although there is Starbucks here for people who want to. Like my kids go to Starbucks because it's basically a sugary drink. It's not coffee. Right. Whereas we have, like here in Dunedin, we're a small city. Comparative to the world, you know, 125,000 people in this city, there's probably, I could probably think of 10 individual coffee roasters in this city who are roasting their own beans, um, making their own mix, and then roasting them themselves. And there's probably 50 to 100 really good coffee shops in Dunedin that aren't just coffee shops, but might be coffee or cafes. Like the local grocery store I go to has a coffee machine and trained baristas there. And it's for fruit and veggie. But there's a coffee machine in it, and they charge really low price. It's like two bucks for a for a good barista cup of coffee. 
So yeah, it's everywhere and it's really snobby. And uh, you know, if you're a bit like me and you enjoy decaf, sometimes you get looked down on. <laughs> but yeah, it's a it's a great it's a great. Apparently, we have a great culture of coffee. Compare uh, if you compare the coffee culture to the rest of the world. I'm going to have to visit, if if only for that alone. I heard you wanted to leave uh, leave America. I heard that you were making noises about getting out in the fall, bro. I thought you'd come down here, come pay us a visit. I'll set you up. I'll find you a place down here and come and broadcast out of New Zealand. You know, what's fascinating is, so the type of person, I'm not part of the let's move to Canada movement that says, you know, if Trump is reelected, I'm moving to Canada sort of thing. <laughs> By the way, it's really hard to move to Canada. So even if I wanted to, I, I don't know that I'd actually be able to. But I have, I mean, my, you know, my family's here, my house is here, all, you know, et cetera. Um, but I have said that with the idea of the virus resurging in the fall and maybe it being pretty ugly here until January, February, yeah. if there was a good opportunity to go somewhere that's doing well, like I was born in Argentina, yep. it's a disaster in Argentina. I'm not going to go to Argentina right now. I could go to Israel, but they're having a problem with the virus. So I'm not going to go to Israel. Like if I could go somewhere that's doing well and do my show for three or four months, I would consider it. And the number one place I got email, well, the two places I got the most emails from were Australia and New Zealand yeah. saying, it's great here. I know this person or that person. I can get you a house. I can get you whatever you need. I actually don't even know the legality of it, honestly. Like, it sounds like you're saying I couldn't even go to New Zealand. No, you could probably get a working visa. I mean, we have a lot of people coming through here. We do have restrictions, not restrictions on age, but I think if you're under 35, you're it's it's thought of thought of like you might still be a student and you're taking a gap year and you're doing a working holiday we have a lot of that i have i have boarders in my house uh two of them from brazil at the moment and they're here on mm. that kind of experience they're doing a i i don't as long as our borders were open meaning non-new zealanders were able to come or if there was a good reason to it i don't think it'd be a problem getting a yeah, you know, six month working visa because that's what. Even though it's wow. an, it's an interesting dynamic actually thinking about that because if you're not actually taking a job from New Zealanders, maybe you wouldn't need a working visa. But probably the easiest way to do it is to get a short term work visa, holiday, a working holiday is what they'd call it. And and but right now I would just wouldn't be allowed in because I'm not from New Zealand. Like only New Zealanders are being allowed in. I think that would be the case unless there's special circumstances like the crew of Avatar. Obviously, that's a massive boost for our economy. Um, I right. was I did a podcast during the lockdown uh, with a poker pro from um, from Las Vegas, and he wants to come down. We also do some really interesting things in New Zealand um, that because we are little and we're at the bottom of the world, sometimes obviously tourism is a massive part of what we do. Uh, we're we're quite heavily inundated with things like influencers. I fucking hate that word, but you know people who have large large Instagram accounts and stuff and sit around and fight, take photos of their asses, that sort of thing. Um, but because we're little, it's good to have people come through here who then share New Zealand with the rest of the world. It's a good way of doing it. So you know, for someone like you or for someone in your kind of position, that could be a that could be a case to put forward. Come down here for three wow. to six months and say, you know, along with my show, I'm going to X Y Z and get around the country and you know, yada yada yada. Perhaps I don't know. Don't know. That's something to look at. That's actually something to look at. But yeah, I mean, I'm not in the mindset of I'm trying to abandon the United States or anything like that. In fact, on on my show later this week, I've already recorded a segment about like what would it take for me to say. I'm done with the United States at this point. And really it would take a lot. I mean, this is why the idea that taxing billionaires will get them to leave the country is, is not a great argument because yeah. for the most part, by the time people are, most people, by the time they're billionaires, uh, they're relatively well-established. They have family where it is that they are. And they're not, uh, you know, they may own places around the world, but for the most part, people are where they are for a reason. Yeah. No, I think um, I, we just had some regulation released yesterday as to how we're going to start to open our borders. And one of it comes down to who's paying for these two-week stays. Um, I'm sort of of the opinion, and this hasn't happened, that we should open up our borders to everybody. But no matter what you come into the country for, you have to do that two-week stand down and you have to pay for it yourself. Now, what that probably means is you would get a number of, or maybe a, a lot of, high net worth individuals coming into the country to go on holiday for a year. You know, if you're a billionaire and you want to get away from shit, Texas or or Brazil or the UK or whatever at the moment, 
and you can come and holiday in a place that's got no community transmission for a year, why wouldn't you? And that would be great for the economy. They haven't done that yet. Um, they've they've kind of just said uh, they've made some. Um, they're about to start charging people to, for for their two week stays under certain conditions. Like if you leave the country and go on holiday, when you come back, you'll still have a two week stand down and you'll have to pay for it yourself. Whereas at the moment they're saying if you're repatriating yourself to stay, then the government pays for it. So the government spent something like four hundred and thirty billion dollars on people's stay in the country. And remember, we are. Five million. So what's that? Like one sixtieth the size of America. So multiply four billion by sixty, and you'll get the equivalent of what the Americans would have spent if if they'd done the same thing. So yeah, yeah. and of course, I mean, there's no shortage of spending money here, but it's being spent in ways that are seemingly less logical in a lot of ways. So clearly, the the money is there, but a lot of strange things are being done with it lately. I was fascinated. I had Dave Rubin on a few weeks ago as well and really yeah 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 yeah. it was it was fun um actually sam cedar picked us up and that was sort of the start of a few connections through into the american show because because i and i did this the other week i had these uh two young american girls on girls is patronizing um women on who have done a a song vote trump vote trump it's this ridiculous well it's not ridiculous it's very catchy actually so they're they're, they're trump i'm gonna have to see some of these episodes it sounds like you guys are really churning a lot of ideas around uh uh, and the thing that i realized is the thing that it feels like is is there is a sector of america that is really ill-informed and yes what happened with uh these these girls the vote trump thing is they have a list of information that they support trump on and they're based on the promises he's kept and i said to them what about all the promises he hasn't kept and of course that that's a google search away in fact there's websites set up to show you know what trump hasn't kept up to and including things like building a wall and the response was oh i don't know about any of those i was like oh (laughs) that's really interesting and then with dave i talked about how our our and i love talking to americans about healthcare. Because we have a brilliant healthcare system, you know. My my mum sadly two years ago passed away of motor neuron disease. Spent three years basically with the illness. Finished up with a a a, a bed a bed from Germany and a chair from Japan or something. Yeah, and then a stay in hospital. Not a cent went out of my parents' bank balance. You know, it was that was the way it is. And Sam picked up on this. Sam Cedar picked up on this. I didn't because I'm not quite as knowledgeable as to what Obamacare is but when I described what we did to Dave Dave said he'd support that and Sam said I described Obamacare so it's it was it was that's interesting because um I've had the exact same conversation I don't want to turn this into a being about Dave Rubin but the, the last time I spoke to Dave Rubin um via audio visual means was when he was on my program for about an hour and he had said he was against Obamacare, but then he said what he would want is ABCD and described Obamacare, yeah. which was interesting that it, that was repeated on your program. I'm going to have to go find that. Yeah, well, I mean, I'll, I'll send you the link there if you want, bro. Um, um, yeah, so it, there's this, there seems to be this, um, and I guess we all have our bubbles, you know, that we're in and that we mostly rely on. I guess, and I spoke to these American, Haley and Camille were their names. And I spoke to them about it, and I and I and I always use this terrible analogy of, you know, when you're sitting outside a situation, it's sometimes easy to see it and see what's going on. And I often talk about because I'm from New Zealand about the rugby field being like your life. So the field of get play, where all the players on that's my life, and all the players on the field is part of my life. But sometimes when you're in the ruck and you're, you know, your heads down and you and you're in a scrum or something like that, you can't see as clearly as what's going on out the back of the field as someone sitting in the stand. And I used to use that analogy to be like a, a counsellor. A counsellor is someone who sits in the stand. They can look down on the field of your life and say, what about this? What about this? I think with America, for some people, um, present company excluded, obviously, who aren't well informed as to what's going on in America, people on the outside looking in, people sitting in the stands going, man, this is America, sometimes have a better um, understanding of what's happening in America than some of these Americans who are ensconced in a Fox News bubble or, you know, or, or whatever bubble it is. Let's not just pick on a right-wing bubble, but whatever bubble it is. Um, yeah, and, and, and so I consume everything. You know, my feed brings everything up. Far-left news, 
you know, independent stuff off of the media, far right news. Even OAN pops up occasionally on my news feeds and I keep an eye on it. Because I think it's good to, you know, you know thy enemy. Is that the saying? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's good to have, so there, there's kind of two views on this. As an observer, if you're observing the culture and you're observing the political uh, spectrum and you're trying to understand what are the sort of limits of the debate that, that are taking place, it's really good to be consuming and looking at a wide spectrum of things. The problem, of course, is people who are less savvy when it comes to media literacy and critical thinking. And the risk is, like when I see OAN, it's interesting to me because I'm understanding the place that it has as an even more right-wing and less professional alternative to Fox News, <laughs> yeah. which has sort of become something for Donald Trump to promote when he wants to criticize Fox News. It's more conspiratorial. Mm. It's even less fact. You know, like I understand its role and its place on the spectrum. The problem is that you get folks who they come across it in their feed and they um, sort of accept it with the same understanding as if it were the Washington Post. And then that's how you end up with people that seem to be in a fantasy world and believing things not based in fact. So that's the danger of it. Or, or one step worse than that, they take it more seriously than Washington Post because the Washington Post is, sure. is taken by Jeff Bezos, who's the devil incarnate and a left-wing lunatic. Of course. Which, of course, which yeah, nothing no, could be further clear. from the truth. Yeah, uh, yeah. so you're talking about people who aren't politically or media savvy enough to understand what they're actually seeing. Yeah, no, I used to, I worked in Talkback for 10, 12 years here in New Zealand. Um, we've really only got one Talkback station. It's the biggest radio station in New Zealand. Um, and uh, I used to say, I watch Fox News a lot. I don't watch it as a source of news. I watch it more for entertainment, but I do watch it a lot because that's about the level. Although it's interesting of recent times seeing more and more of their hosts on occasion starting to call out Trump. And I wonder if that's simply because they know Trump's not going to be in after the next election and they need access to Biden. And if they're not fair to Biden now, they may not have it. Yeah, I think there's a scattershot approach being taken on Fox News where they want to have examples of everything that they can point to. And it's almost like having an audio mixer with a bunch of things yeah, yeah. set to two so that you know, if you need to turn something up to four, you can. And so that's, I think, why you're seeing Donald Trump very happy with some of the stuff that's on Fox News. And then at the same time, attacking some of the, the broadcasters and programs on Twitter that are on Fox News. I think that's essentially what's going on. I mean, it's just a business, you know, and Fox News is, is decidedly right wing, yep. but they're not married to Trump. And early in the Republican primary, even in 2015, before 2016, before it was clear Trump would be the nominee, Fox was very anti-Trump. And I think had they known he was going to be the nominee, they would have probably been more favorable to him from the beginning. And yeah. it's, it's, it's really simply a business. Yeah, no, I think I saw you or heard you on, on Rogan's podcast talking about it's more of a, the left versus right thing is more of a commercial entity first. The, a... a a, um, a business is about making money first and if they can make money uh, you know uh, being more attractive to the left then they will or being more attractive to the right they will but the, the dollar is the thing everyone's chasing as opposed to a political ideology and I think that's a really yeah good I mean analogy. when Fox News started in 1996 it started because of a market opportunity it started with the growing idea that the media was left-wing, that corporate media was left-wing. We can debate to what degree that's true. I think it's more of a corporatist centrist bias, but, but it doesn't matter. The idea that they could repeat that the media is left-wing created the market opportunity. And that was the genesis of Fox News. Had, that not, had there not been a market opportunity, the fact that right-wing people would love to do right-wing news would have not been enough to get Fox News going. It was the financial piece that made it possible. Uh, following on from Fox News starting, was that when conservative talk started to get bigger as well? Like I'm thinking of the Rush Limbaugh's of this world, or were they always that sort of big influencer and then Fox News followed them? Fox News really followed them. There, right. There's a, an interesting, a very important book uh, which may be out of print, called Waves of Rancor, which actually goes back far earlier than Fox News to the genesis of talk radio and how it was dominated by the right. And it's it's actually a structural explanation mm -hmm. for why. Um, there was the, uh, it, it was 
radio stations benefiting from lower, from less regulation under the FCC that sort of created a where if you were running a radio station, you were better off with lower regulation, which also meant you were probably more likely to be on the political right, which is how talk radio started with right-wing political content, a lot of religious-based content. In yeah. fact, a lot of religious-based con content predated the straight-up political content on, on talk radio in the United States. So that definitely predates Fox News by many decades. It's one of the things that's always fascinated me and confused me about uh, America is the whole um, conservative evangelical world. I, it's it's a bizarre. It used to be one, and it used to be one of my favorite talk topics. I used to I used to talk I used to love talking politics and religion and um, you know issues around New Zealand as well when I was doing talkback. It's still sort of what my my vent is now, but you, you know, not to reference this podcast I did a, a few weeks ago, but finally getting to talk to them. It was like I got to my um, perfect storm. They were um, young, which you wouldn't think necessarily are Republican voters. They were women who you didn't think would be supporting uh, Trump. They were Christians and they were Trump supporters. And I was just like, holy crap, this is the, this is the goldmine of people I've always wanted to talk to to try and figure it out. I, I still am no clearer at the end of it. Although, I think to be honest with you, the, the abortion issue seems to be the be-all and end-all amongst those conservative Christians that, tr pardon the pun, but trumps everything else. As long as they say they're pro-life, everything else goes out the window, no matter what. But it's a, it's a surreal yeah. and bizarre thing. It's changed a bit, though. So there's a couple things that have been going on. One is that since since Roe v. Wade, which here in the United States is sort of like the landmark yeah. um, abortion-related legislation or framework, since Roe v. Wade, support for abortion being legal in most cases is the highest it's ever been right now. Right. So that's been a shift, and that has made abortion a little bit less of a um, wedge with which to either divide people or raise money, although certainly in the evangelical circles, it's still very, very important. But the other thing that's gone on is, so prior to Trump, I would have divided the American right into sort of three main groups. One is the sort of Mitt Romney, John Kasich type, um, low tax, pro-business type Republicans who they might be socially conservative, but by, by coincidence, but it's less their, their main right. uh, avenue of, of uh, evangelizing for their views. You then have the evangelical religious conservatives, or I guess we would say religious conservatives who are mostly evangelical Christians, although it includes conservative Catholics as well and, and other sects. That's the second piece. And then the third piece was these kind of Tea Party liberty and freedom, more libertarian-minded folks. So that those were the three big pieces. In the Trump era, there's been this fourth group, which seems to not care at all about policy. They, I mean, okay, if Trump says he's against abortion, now, at, you know, when he was 68, he said, I'm now against abortion. <laughs> they believe it, and I guess they're fine with it, but if he weren't against abortion, it would, it would be okay. And Trump's never really been bothered by gay marriage, and that's fine. Although if he was against gay marriage, that would be great too. It's more about angering the left, doing the opposite of what the left wants, mm. and supporting sort of like the cult of personality. Mm. And that is now like a pretty important fourth wing of the American right. And once Trump is gone, whenever that is, it'll be interesting to see whether that remains or sort of fades away. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the Tea Party. They they kind of got uh, absorbed pretty quickly into the Republicans because the other thing it seems that, and, and talked about our political system being mixed member proportional, we sort of have what America has, it's just we have them in separate parties. So some of our centrist party MPs, and I think there's about seven of them in that party called New Zealand First, would be more on the left, some would be more on the right. They could be split and they could go either side. And obviously our far right, there's only one MP in that party called Axe. He could become a part of the National Party, which is our main party there. And our far left, quote unquote far left, Green Party, could be could go, and then you'd have just two parties. And I wonder, and I, and I know this will never happen, it's more of a, I don't know, uh, a mind game to play, but... It seems that if your far-right Republicans broke off and formed a Tea Party and your far-left progressive broke off and formed a progressive party, then everyone would actually fit more naturally as to where they their ideologies are. And then perhaps you would get the two parties joining after the election 
to form a majority. But oh, we no, that's not right, is it? You just have four. You'd have sorry, you'd have four presidential candidates to vote for. Four main ones. You'd have the progressive candidate, the left candidate, the right candidate, and the far right candidate. And that would be how you get your your, your representation of everybody. Yeah, I mean, it, with our current voting system, of course, it's just whoever received the plurality would be that 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 would essentially be it, and then. In the House of Representatives, where there's 435 seats in some districts, one of these other parties might be able to win some seats. But, you know, this gets to really thinking about whether the, the first past the post voting system we have is the one that best serves a diversity of ideas. I think it's probably not, to, to be perfectly frank, and I've talked a lot about that. Um, but it's a, it's a um, you, you know, the Tea Party is interesting because they now, I believe in the House of Representatives, there's 23 Tea Party caucus members who are Republican. They're all Republicans, yeah. but they, there's this caucus, which is not of any real significance other than they you know, may work on legislation together or agree to support or not support legislation all as, as a group. Um, they, they were just absorbed into the Republican Party. The don't tread on me ideology mm -hmm. of the Tea Party was sort of accepted a little bit more into the Republican Party, and there's no more really distinct ideology other than than this caucus. It could have gone a different way, which is that there could have been a more wholesale rejection of Tea Party ideology in the subsequent election, which there was not. And as you say, it's sort of been accepted and absorbed. I think that one of the things that I like um, sharing with Americans often, and it blows some of their brains, especially if they're conservative, is the evidence that America is a left-wing country. Um, and the, the, the information or the, the, the research that I cite is very simple. I think it's since um, Clinton, the Republicans have only won the popular vote once, and that was George W. Bush's second term after 9-11. After other than that, every other election, more people have voted for the left than the right. Now, to me, when you say, talk about first past the post, that is evidence of how unfair the system is and how actually, uh, you know, America is founded on these ideals and freedoms and fairnesses and one man, one vote. It's not, it's not the case because if it was one person, one vote and your vote actually mattered, then since 1994, <laughs> there would have been a left-wing government for that whole time, bar one year, obviously, sliding doors. You know, we can't say that for sure. But I think that's fairly evidence, evident that America is a, left, more, a more left-leaning country. And I'll probably go one step further than that and say most Western countries are probably more left-leaning in general and the problem is the left is typically more apathetic and the right are better organizers and that's actually what makes the uh, election in whatever western country uh, uh more of a battle as, a, as opposed to where the population sits so in terms of generally the left being more apathetic i don't know i mean what i what i can speak to would be in the united states first of all on issues the country has moved left right so as i mentioned before Support for abortion being legal in most cases, higher than ever. Support for same-sex marriage, higher than ever. Um, support for the government should provide some level of health care for everybody, regardless of ability to pay, higher, very, very high. Exactly what, mo what mode it takes is certainly up for debate. And so, yes, on the issues, I think you're absolutely right. The reason... The reasons that the right continues to do well are, as you mentioned, the Electoral College, despite losing a number of popular vote elections, the Electoral College has bailed out Republicans. Um, that, that's one reason. Number two, at this, in the United States, at the state and local level, the Republican Party is absolutely better at organizing, and mm. they understand you know, taking over school boards, taking over boards, state boards of education, uh, state houses, it's starting to turn a little bit. What we're seeing in Virginia is sort of um, reassuring. Georgia and Texas are starting to certainly look less overtly red. So that's another reason Republicans do well. Um, and the, the other aspect of it is the Republican Party has openly tried to suppress the vote in their favor for yeah. multiple election cycles at this point. And you don't have to take my word for it. Look at the video of Mike Terzai admitting it. Look at Trump saying, you know, if you do all of this, if, you, if, if, if so many more people vote, Republicans will never win again. And so this is a whole other story, but everything from voter registration purges, reducing voting locations in disproportionately 
left-leaning areas. It's a playbook and it's a whole topic on its own, but that skews the results when I completely agree with you on the issues the U.S. is, is as left as it has been in a very long time. Do you think that is because attitudes are changing uh, or do you think it's because of attrition? I mean, everyone has always talked about for the last 10 or 15 years, oh, you know, when those old people die off, you know, the, the world will be a different place. Do you, where, where do you place that shift to the left? So the there's this, sometimes people in the U.S. will say people get more conservative as they get older. Mm -hmm. There's not actually evidence I've seen of that. The evidence I've seen is that at any given time, at any given point in time, the older folks are more conservative than the younger folks. So it's not that a 50-year-old by the time they're 60 is more likely to be conservative. It's that in 2020, the 50-year-olds are likely to be more liberal than the 60-year-olds. So in a right. sense, that sort of goes to your attrition idea, which is subsequent generations tend to be more to the left. Now, there's groups in the United States like Turning Point USA and others <laughs> who want to make the case that there's a resurgence of the young right. I don't really think so, uh, because when you poll a lot of these people, you know, they may show up at a Trump event and they may be able, able to articulate some policy ideas that sort of line up with, with Trumpism. But the idea of young people as conservative in the traditional sense, I don't think has been demonstrated. And I think that it, it's hard to get a good read on it right now because of the cult of Trumpism. Mm -hmm. And hopefully once that goes away, a lot of those people are going to realize, you know, the, the pre-Trump Republican Party conservatism is not really for me. It's a guess, but I'm hoping that that happens. Well, and also I think that what you hear in the media is often, as as we all know, um, the 5% on either side, the 5% extremists on either side get, you know, 90% of the airtime. So what we're, what we're seeing and hearing of the, of the resurgence of the young conservative might be that 5% on the far end, but then there's another 45% that sits in that conservative side that isn't young at all. I mean, you look at just the numbers. No question about yeah. it. Yeah. You look at the numbers of, uh, of age of people who watch Fox News, that kind of stuff, and it's probably, I don't know, is it up to 80 yet? Well, certainly last I saw it was over 65, the average age. Yeah, the, the demographics of the typical Fox News viewer skew quite old. Now, that being said, it, it, it's not like CNN and MSNBC are overrun, over, overrun with a young audience, but it's certainly younger. I, I think the concern more, more recently is these um, sort of filter bubble recommendation algorithm echo chambers that the younger people can fall into on YouTube, for example, yep. where, uh, you know, people have called into my show and they say, you know, I really cared about video games and video games on YouTube ended up with me being recommended a right wing gamer which led me to Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson. And next thing I know, I'm a men's rights activist. Like that's a caricature of it. Yeah. But that is a story that is, is a relevant one. And so that I think is more important than Fox News or Rush Limbaugh at this point, at least for the younger generation. Oh, well, then you get the flip side of it as well. You get that fantastic trolling from South Korean TikTokers with, you know, Donald Trump's uh, campaign, his rally in Tulsa, who he thought he was going to have a million people and they got 6,000. Yeah. So I guess they're both doing it, aren't they? Both the left and the right are finding ways to use new technology, but it's not, it's not the DNC or the RNC that's doing it. It's, I, don't, I hate to use the term grassroots, but it's young people going, hey, here's a good idea. And it's them basically figuring out how to use the technology to speak to their people. And I think brilliant. Brilliant. Yes. Although a lot of it is not grassroots. I mean, a lot of the stuff that's happening on the right anyway, and this is like to their credit. I mean, I'm not, I, I, as a, politically, I don't like it, but strategically they're doing something that the left is not doing, which is the left doesn't really have these established paths where they will sort of help on campus politically outspoken people build coalitions and support and pour money into it. Yeah. The left doesn't have widespread, you know, trainings of teaching people just out of college messaging and how to communicate left ideas. The right has all of this stuff and right. they fund it. So when you look at something like Turning Point USA, it's heavily funded by legacy right-wing groups and rich people. But it looks as though, to some people, it looks as though it's grassroots. Right. And, you know, good for them in the sense that it's working, although I think the effects on the country are, are disastrous. How long do you think it's going to be until TV is finally dead? I mean, you talk about who's watching TV, the older people. I mean, like people like yourselves. And if you look across the political spectrum, you know, there's you, there's the Young Turks, there's the Kyle Kalinskis, there's the Stephen Crowders, there's the whoever it is across the spectrum. 
are already sort of eating up certainly so much of that younger audience when is when is what you're doing and i guess your your fellow independent media groups doing when is that going to be the the first source of news for everybody not just perhaps you know gen x and below I think it'll mostly depend on the blending of uh, cable TV as a service and internet access as a service. And it's sort of starting to happen, you know, early in the broadband revolution, it was like, okay, you've got your cable TV and here are your channels. And then you have your internet service Mm -hmm. over time. It started to get blended in that you can hook up your internet to the TV without really having cable and get a YouTube app on the television. And that's sort of starting, starting to blend. Yeah. So I think it'll be driven mostly by technology. Um, You know, in, in cars, for example, the reason I've not listened to the regular radio in eight years or something like that is because I've had serious satellite radio and I can plug my phone in and get Spotify or whatever. And so now car radio is really a bunch of different things. And I think technological change will, will continue to drive that, but I don't think traditional television is going to go away anytime soon. We'll probably just see the balance continue to shift. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating. I'm 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 wondering. We're a bit different here because we're so much smaller. We have sort of only two major news outlets on television, two national television. So when COVID happened, we were having daily briefings at one o'clock every day, and I think the number of people watching on TV outstripped the number of people watching on the internet. And I wonder if that's part of our economies of scale. Everyone had a TV. Not everyone had. Like we've got very good broadband here in Dunedin. We're, I'm on a gig line, which is which is good for New Zealand and good on a world comparison. But still, not everyone's got that. But everyone does have a TV. Hey, um, we're coming up to an hour, so time has flown by. Having a chat with you, I could keep yes. going forever. Anything else you want to leave our our our, our people with and your people with at the same time? Uh, yes, if you have uh, offers for me to come to New Zealand, let me know. And uh, no, I mean, it, I, it's always been a place that's high on my list. You know, at one point, the longest flight in the world, I believe, was from my birth city of Buenos Aires to Auckland at right. one point. I believe that flight has not existed at this point for a little while. And uh, I, I don't know if it will come back. But New Zealand has been an interesting place to me for a long time. And I would I would love to visit sooner than later and whether I shack up for six months and do my show <laughs> avoiding the virus or whether it's just, you know, a, a vacation in sometime down the line um i I, it seems like a a fascinating place and i would love to visit well i do know that uh of recent times probably not operating at the moment there was a new route put in from chicago to auckland direct so that was put in fairly recently sorry if if, if an americans that would be a um, a route a new route we'd say route (laughs) so just to make sure that's clear i was funny i was doing um i was doing a, a sponsor last night and uh yeah we say x y z whereas americans say x y z so we're .co.nz, but I repeated it just in case anyone was tuning in, .co.nz for the website, just in case there was an American watching. I think that's smart. So anyone knew. And then I, and then I unfortunately <laughs> mocked the American language, so probably I turned a bunch of people off. Not smart. <laughs> it's conceivably possible that somebody was uh, very fragile in that moment and did not like your pronunciation of letters. True. David Pacman, thanks for joining us, dude. It's been a, it's been a blast. And look, uh, Jacinda offered it to, um, to Stephen Colbert. I'll offer it to you. When you get to New Zealand, I'll pick you up from the airport. Won't be a problem. Please. And then we'll have, I'm sure, the best cappuccino of my life. (laughs) Be safe in Massachusetts, brother. Thank you so much. All right, team, that's us done and dusted. The Department of Conversation brought to you by Stratus, the most affordable alternative to smoking. The Stratus Pod Kit is one of the most user-friendly, easy-to-use pods on the market and find out more about it if you'd like to stop smoking by heading to vaporium.nz. All right, if you want to find out more about what we're all about and what we're up to, then head to www.thedoc.nz or easy way to find us is through uh, Facebook, facebook.com forward slash D-O-C-N-Z, D-O-C-N-Z for you lovely Americans out there. Now, if because of David being on, you've just found us, we are a new uh, addition to yours, uh, then feel free to rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe. Subscriptions will be great. As you all know, uh, more subscriptions you have and the more usage we get, the higher we end up being up in various algorithms for other people to find us as well. 
while you're there if you are an audio podcaster listener then a like on facebook and a subscription on youtube would be greatly appreciated again it um, gives us the, the more subscribers we have uh, the more opportunity we have to get various rights and privileges as offered by youtube so yeah, we'd like to get a few more subscriptions there on YouTube, although we don't use YouTube a lot. We mostly uh, see our video packages through Facebook, but Facebook's being, well, they're being dicks at the moment, actually, to be honest with you. So I'd like to move away from them as much as possible. YouTube would be a great place to go, as long as YouTube treats us well as well. Ugh, reliance on these platforms. What are we supposed to do? Facebook.com forward slash DOCNZ. Uh, just look us up, DOCNZ or the DOCNZ on uh, YouTube or our direct link to our page is actually D-O-C-N-Z Studios on uh, YouTube. You'll find us easily that way as well. All right, team, uh, lovely to be with you again. Thanks for spending some time with us. Uh, thank you again uh, to David for giving us an hour of his time. And until we see you next time, hey, Root. Right.